Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. Today, we're talking about improving accessibility in organizations, particularly large ones, and how to move beyond getting everyone to agree that accessibility is a good idea. My guest is Joe Devon. He is the co-founder of Global Accessibility Awareness Day, also known as hashtag GAAD on all the socials. The purpose of GAD is to get everyone talking, thinking, and learning about access and inclusion. GAD celebrated its 10th anniversary in 2021. Joe is also the co-founder of Diamond, a Los Angeles-based digital agency that builds accessible experiences for Fortune 500 companies. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Parallel. Thank you. Hi, Shelley. How are you? I'm, I'm great, and it's really good to, to have you here. I, uh, I jumped at the chance to talk to you. Global Accessibility Awareness Day, for people who don't know, happens in, in May, and it's something that I try to keep up with. And I, I was really excited to get the chance to talk to you. And we're kind of, we're not at a point where you're like planning a, another one coming right up. So hopefully things are a little, uh, a little more chill on that front than they would have been had we talked like right before the end of May when it happened. Indeed, though, uh, busy on other things. It's, it's always busy. Sure. But yeah, of course, God time is, is definitely crazy. Well, so I gave a little bio of you about GAD and about uh, Diamond, your company, but but tell us a little bit about yourself for people who don't know you. Sure. So I'm Canadian. I was born in Montreal, and uh, I started programming when I was 13 years old. So tech is kind of in the blood. Um, and then as the attention turned from the internet to the World Wide Web uh, in the 90s, I got a job at a search engine company that actually predated AltaVista, let alone Google. And obviously, those days, we weren't even thinking about accessibility. Um, then I joined uh, an agency as an early employee, and we grew it to about 400 people and took it public four years later. So I had some good experience building software. Um, from there, I went to work at AmericanIdol.com and met a developer there who then became my co-founder in uh, Diamond, and we've grown it to about 100 people. So... We do accessibility by default, and really, I eat my own dog food, but it, it was certainly a journey to get there um, because the way that GAD was founded, which was about the same time, uh, it was just a blog post that I wrote, and it just went totally viral. So the, the funny thing is people got to know me for accessibility, but it took me a little while to catch up and learn about accessibility. You, you don't start as an expert, obviously. Um, so it's been quite the journey and yeah, it changed my life. It's something I'll be involved with, you know, until I die. I've had that experience too, of you really care about something like accessibility, but then you realize, oh, there's a lot I actually need to learn about this before I can go out and talk to people. <laughs> yeah. I get that. So what was your blog post or what was the motivating factor for GAD? Were you frustrated? Were you seeing something, not seeing something out there that you wanted to see or how did, how did you get started? Uh, absolutely was seeing things missing. And, and that's why I mentioned, you know, being a web developer at American Idol. Uh, here we are, we have this technology, World Wide Web comes out and it changes the game for the entire world. And had we made everything accessible uh, when, we, when we started with websites and then eventually apps, then people with disabilities would not have a problem and it would solve so many things. So, uh, I, uh, an example that I give folks is imagine that you're blind before the web, before apps came out, before there was a ride sharing app and you wanted to go to a restaurant. How do you do that? What if you're in a different city? It's really, really hard. 
um, because you have to trust somebody to give you a telephone number or first of all, to point you to a telephone, to, to look up the phone number. Then how do you know that the taxi arrived? How does the taxi know where you are? How do you pay for it? Because today, uh, uh, uh money is not accessible. Dollar bills are not accessible. So this is kind of the backdrop to what I started thinking about accessibility. And then all of a sudden, my dad, who was a genius, he spoke 10 languages, uh, was just an incredible man. He was trying to do his online banking and the banking uh, website was not accessible. And that was really painful because this is my field and we really failed my dad on that day. And so I wrote a blog post saying that the initial idea was just developers should become aware of accessibility and then we'll build things better so that it is accessible. And I obviously touched a nerve because uh, right from the first year, we had 16 different cities running GAD events. But now it's this huge thing. So 10 years later, you have companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google every year saying, well, this is what we're going to do to uh, recognize GAD. And you have uh, other events that are specifically related to accessibility that are that are all about GAD. And I mean, I'm sure there was some serendipity involved in that. But but did you also reach out to those companies and sort of get them engaged? Did they come to you? A lot of them don't come to me. I'd say that whatever you, whatever GAD event you hear about, that's about half of the events that are happening. And the reason for that, well, first, it's, it's funny. Anytime I look at code that's six months old, I hate it. Anytime I look at some <laughs> writing that I've done six months, one month, one week, one year later, I'm like, this is terrible. I should have written it better. And then I, it took me years to be ready to look at that blog post again. And then when I did, I was like, oh my God, this is, I laid it out. It was just luck. I laid it out correctly and everything that I wrote in there happened. Um, and then all I really did was a call out to the community, totally grassroots. And I said, reach out to uh, journalists. And a lot of people did. And it was, it was totally grassroots. So I'd say, Yes, there was definitely some degree of outreach, particularly with uh, Jenison Ascension, my co-founder of GAD. Um, he knew a lot of people in the accessibility world and and they really picked it up. But it went beyond there because it just touched a nerve with so many people. I, I think folks don't realize how huge, how many people have a disability. And it's going beyond just developers not the de- developers are obviously very important because you're ma- you have to make things accessible in order for people to interact with them but 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 talk about that talk about where gad has gone some of the places it's gone that maybe you didn't expect oh i mean it, it's been on every continent um there have been like just in the last year i've spoken at many organizations i guess i shouldn't mention them because some of them are not as far along in their accessibility journal, uh, journey so they probably don't want their name mentioned, but lots of big companies that I've spoken to. And then I run into folks in many, many Fortune 500 companies randomly, and they say that they've done a GAD event. Um, one, one day I was like, I'm going to go visit Japan. I ran into some colleagues from Japan and uh, was at a dinner, and then they started introducing me around. And right at the table, there were people in different cities in Japan that ran GAD events. And, you know, the the color drained from their face when 
when I was introduced <laughs> and it drained from my face too. And I wound up uh, doing events over there uh, and, and just meeting a, a really large community of people that felt underserved and misunderstood with respect to accessibility in Japan. And every time I go somewhere, the first thing I do is see if there's any accessibility people there. And no matter where I go, there's somebody that's done a GAD event. And then how do you go beyond the sort of undeniable PR value and exposure value of something like GAD and make it to the next level where people are actually changing what they do and making what they make more accessible? I'd say... Like, I, I guess my, I guess I'm trying to understand your question. How do I do that? How do companies do that? No, like, I, I, I guess, I guess, well, I guess as some, as the, as the co-founder of, of GAD and you see all these great events that happen, I guess I wonder, is there a, once you get people's enthusiasm and their buy-in and once they say, yeah, we, we've done GAD events, we want to do GAD events, is there anything that, that you can do or the other people that are involved in GAD can do to sort of take it to the either take it to the next level or encourage them to take it to the next level because obviously they have to do the work because you know there's there's a way in which if it were done wrong a company that was doing a GAD event could be getting PR benefits and not necessarily doing the work and I, okay. I, and I hope that's not the case you know and obviously you're not responsible for all of it you're not in charge of how all these giant companies do it but uh, I would I would guess that you have some ability to communicate with them and say hey, here, here are some ways you can, you know, actually walk the walk. Yeah, great question. They, they Typically, I find out after it happens. <laughs> it's, it's not typically in advance. However, lots of folks ask me to speak at, a, at events, at their company events. And there, it's easier. Once, once the door is opened and there's an advocate internally, and there usually is, uh, where I really start is I say, you need some empathy training. And I look at the company and I try and find a notable person who has a disability that is a user of theirs. So, you know, as a company, we do a lot of media work coming from the media world. And I might take somebody like James Rath uh, or Tommy Edison, who are influencers. One of them is a filmmaker. The other one has been a traffic reporter um, uh, and a journalist and has this great YouTube channel. So you take somebody like that that uses the technology and you set up an empathy training with the user. All of a sudden, you're not it's, it's not a theoretical user of yours. You're seeing somebody that's a fan of your work, but they can't use it as well as they'd like to because it's not accessible. So when you start with with the why then the people on the ground are like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing person. This is my user. This is a fan of my work, and I'm not serving them well. You've got my attention. And once you have that, then you bring in the trainers that will train them how to make it accessible. And you found that that works really well. Are there are there kinds of organizations for which that has worked better than others. I'm not asking you to rat anybody out, but I'm, I'm just wondering, are there, are there particular either kinds of tools or just kind of companies where that's an approach that's like a guaranteed win? I, I've seen that work everywhere. It's not one type of company that, that goes well, no matter where. So what's something that any organization who says, okay, accessibility is important. I, I want to get involved. I want to do it. What's a good Thing that almost any organization could do to kind of get started? 
uh, after the empathy training, um, yeah. I would say, look at your user. First of all, no matter what your company is, you have users, customers, right? So hopefully you're speaking to your customers because if you're not, then right there, you, you have a problem. And if you are speaking to your customers, have you paid attention to your users with disabilities? I would go through the the feedback and try to identify some of your users that have disabilities and then hire them to help create a persona for your product team. Because anybody that reaches out to you, there's probably for every one person, there's a hundred that are in the same category. And you're lucky enough that they cared enough about your product to reach out to you. So start with them because you're gonna learn a lot there. And that process will make your product better. That's one of the secret sauces that, that Apple has. They cared about accessibility from very early on. The retina, from what I, I understand, the retina display um, and all the attention that they played on, uh, paid on, on the usability of their graphics and the iPad, that all came because they build personas and they care about people with disabilities. So it, they care about all their users, really. And the fact that that really when you're looking at disability, it tends to be the edge cases in a lot of ways. When you make your product work well for the edge cases, that makes your core product even better. And there's countless stories of this. So that's the easiest way to begin because you know, your, your customer, who's, who's better than that? And what role does actually hiring people with disabilities uh, play? Because you mentioned that, and that could be anything from testing all the way up to development or senior leadership. And I don't know that we know as much about people with disabilities in large organizations as we do some other diversity categories that, that we hear about. So is hiring something that you focus on or talk oh, to people yeah. about? Oh, absolutely. You, you definitely need to do that, but it gets very tricky because you uh, very likely have people with disabilities in your organization and don't know it. Or if you know it, you can't talk about it uh, because of, of employment laws. But having someone with a disability really changes the game for your own employees because all of a sudden they have a colleague uh, that, that needs accessible services. And, and it just it, it, it makes it real for the employees, for other employees. And, and then they will care to make their products more accessible. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by FastMail. FastMail is putting you first by prioritizing privacy and usability. Unlike some other email services that can sell your information, FastMail keeps advertisers out of your inbox by putting you in control of your data. So you can focus on your workflow knowing that your privacy is protected with a business model that leaves advertisers out. FastMail works great with the built-in email, calendar, and contacts apps in macOS and iOS, in addition to offering a great web client. The open source elements put you in control of your workflow with all the tools to do things your way. So you can set up processing systems that eliminate unwanted mail and prioritize what's important automatically. A lot of people say they don't like email and they say they don't even use it. And I don't know what world they get to live in, but in my world, I have to use email, whether it's for work or for my personal life or for my podcast. And sure, I chat and text with people all the time, but there are many instances, whether it's official documents or whether it's communicating with people you don't know, that you find yourself working in email. And there's a lot of processing and management that goes on in that. And I I like to automate my email quite a bit. And I also like to be able to grab my email from whatever 
place I'm at, whether it's on my computer or on my phone or somehow in a random web browser somewhere. And Fastmail makes that possible. And I feel like if you're going to use email, uh, if you don't love it, or even if you love it, it should be as efficient and effortless a process as possible. And that's what Fastmail makes possible. For over 20 years, Fastmail has been keeping customer data private. It's one of the longest operating and most trusted email services in the world. To be a part of the very best in email, go directly to the source and try Fastmail. Just go to fastmail.com slash parallel, that's P-A-R-A-L-L-E-L, to get started today. Fastmail.com slash parallel for a free month and 10% discount on your first year. Our thanks to Fastmail for their support of this show. Accessibility is obviously a really broad term. It can mean everything from website accessibility to apps to just the the working environment for for employees. Is there a particular area, and it doesn't have to be one of those, but is there a particular area of accessibility that you think companies tend to overlook that you'd like to see them focus on more? Good question. I I don't know if there's an area that they that they don't look at i think they don't look at most areas frankly <laughs> but what i try to where, where i think it's helpful for them to understand why it's so important there's some basic statistics right when you look at the average person the average person 11 percent of their life they will be faced with a disability and i think of it more as a spectrum than you have a disability. There are statistics that the WHO came out with that say that there's a billion people with a disability, but they had to to take uh, they had to decide. Well, what is the definition of a disability? And that's where it impairs your day to day life by X percentage. And to some degree, that's arbitrary. But I'm I'm in my fifties. My vision is terrible. Like it drives me crazy. But I don't consider it a disability, but maybe if I had the same vision when I was 10 years old, I would consider it a disability. And when you think of it from being in a, from being in a spectrum, you approach the products you're developing differently. And one thing in particular that works well when you're speaking to designers is there's a large population that are colorblind. And if you are developing, for example, a chat app like Skype, uh, or Slack, and you are conveying information through color, like online, offline, with a green for online and a red for offline, which is a common pattern, to someone that's colorblind, you're just showing them gray and gray. They have no idea if the person's online or offline. And just for an extra 10 seconds to a designer, you just add in the word online, offline, and you're accessible. And it costs you not a penny extra if your team knows accessibility from the start, but if they don't know it, then you're going to be inaccessible and you're going to be serving your audience in a worse way. And I'd say that even if you are uh, not colorblind, having that online offline, some people just don't even realize that, that what that red and green means. You'd be surprised. So it, that kind of thinking helps you create much better products. The example of designers is really interesting to me because they're obviously focused on usability, but they're also focused on aesthetics. And whether it's color or whether it's design in terms of like what looks great visually on screen, it it strikes me that that's a really hard group to say to, okay, we want your whatever you make to look as good as it possibly can be, but we also want it to be accessible and, and get that to be in their core thinking 
before the point where you say, see that button right there? Half of your, some percentage of your users can't use it because they're colorblind. Is, is, is that a challenge that you've, you've worked on at all? I, I haven't had designers that are able to like admit to me that they feel that this is an impediment. It, it, I would say that design is usually where people struggle, but I, I don't struggle communicating to them because there's just no, there's no answer that they can give that's going to work because it's like you're designing things to be usable for people. So if your design is not usable to people, then you are failing as a designer, number one. And number two, if you're talking about the artistic aspect of it, I'm giving you a challenge. Make this beautiful and make this accessible. And art is all about, uh, what's the word? Um, There's a really good word for constraints. Mm -hmm. Art is about constraints. So I'm giving you a constraint, make it accessible and make it beautiful. And if you can't do that, then what kind of artist are you? And obviously, I would say it in a nicer way, but that's really the heart of it. If you if you cannot work within this constraint, then why are you in this field? And similarly, not in terms of the actual uh, ways that they have to work, but in terms of the way that impacts them, developers are focused on does this code work? Does it do a certain thing? And a, a developer may not know WCAG rules or other or how screen readers work in particular environments. And so I wonder, how do you communicate to a developer, okay, you have a tool that works perfectly well, you've debugged it, it's great, but we need to make sure that it's accessible to people who use a variety of screen readers or who uh, are, are trying to navigate in a different different web browser. I mean, how do you communicate with, with those folks about how to build in accessibility from the beginning? That is super easy. If you can, in the situation, you take somebody who's blind and uses a screen reader and have them use that person's app. And then I've literally seen a room full of mobile designers get a demo where the registration, there was like a, a, what's it called? A keyboard trap. So literally the user could not register and it was somebody that used their product a lot. Right. It was like the perfect user for them. And uh, this demo, like every single person was shocked and silent. And then overnight, they went from not caring about accessibility bugs to being like, oh, my God, this is my user. And this is this is what I've done. So just showing them is really big. And if you don't have the budget to bring somebody in or, you know, or the wherewithal, just go to Tommy Edison's YouTube channel. And he has some interesting uh, displays of what it's like to use a screen reader with Instagram. And you look at that, it just changes the way you think overnight. Sure. I, and I found, and this is because I'm somebody with a visual impairment, I had to I had to be taught as an accessibility advocate that visual representation to somebody who has vision and who uses it every day can re- be really powerful in terms of accessibility. So if they see that user struggling, if they see, in the case of transportation work I've done, if they see a wheel- wheelchair user trying to get up a sidewalk onto a sidewalk that doesn't have a curb cut, and it's just it's sort of interesting, like finding what motivates people and how they can sort of be gobsmacked into understanding the point you're trying to make better than you're just saying, now be accessible, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've given talks all over the world. I've had people come up to me in tear, tears in their eyes afterward, but nothing has the impact of, of some a person with a disability trying to use your work and you failed them. Nothing hits you like that. Yeah. 
And then on the other side, when you're working with somebody who has a disability, who is going to play that role to, to coin an expression, uh, what do you tell them about how to best communicate what their need is? Because I'm sure sometimes people are frustrated. Sometimes they're angry. Sometimes they might feel that they're being used to make a point because, you know, they're, they're trying to be inspirational or whatever. I mean, so, so how would you communicate with somebody about how to best make their point to somebody who doesn't understand accessibility? Oh, I, I don't even try to, you know, direct someone that's being brought in to show their perspective. Like I'm not trying to influence them in any way whatsoever. I mean, and first of all, let's, those are two different things, right? The, the inspiration is when somebody is using you for what do they call it? Inspiration porn. Um, yeah. That's, that's, I, I want to say despicable, but I think I, I don't know that it's despicable because I think that people who do that are not aware of it, but it is something that rubs a lot of people, rubs me the wrong way, rubs a lot of people the wrong way for good reason. Um, it's like you're you're trying to show that you care, but it's a fake caring. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I can't stand that inspiration porn. But for me, it's just like you're bringing somebody in um, because you're trying to do something very functional, which is help the developer or designer or the product person to understand their user so they build a better product. And to me, like trying to direct somebody as to how to communicate their perspective would be so wrong because the whole purpose of them coming in there is to show folks their perspective. Yeah. That makes sense. That's that's a fair point. It, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I I guess I've I've obviously some people people have different communication styles and some folks have have more experience. But uh, I mean, it's honest, right? If you've got somebody who can't use a particular product and you try to you show them trying to use the product, that's that's real. That's what it is. Yeah. And you do need to be smart about who you're bringing in because it does have to be somebody that is good at communication. A lot of large companies have focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of uh, race and gender and other uh, disadvantaged groups, whether it be in their workplace or how they address their their customers. I wonder if you think disability and accessibility fits into that rubric or should or should it be in, in in terms of like making when you're focusing on making products accessible and the like is it do you feel like it's a separate thing it's not a separate thing i i think if you're trying to bring accessibility into your organization i i don't think it should be under the the dei effort simply because it's its own separate thing and you you need the leadership to come in and help the organization understand how to imbue accessibility in all digital product development. And, and it feels a little bit outside of the DEI efforts. That said, I do think that the two need to work together, coordinate together to help uh, with the efforts of understanding and awareness. And if the organization doesn't have an accessibility group, then it's something that, in my opinion, the DEI organization needs to bring up to management and start there. So, so if it doesn't exist, then yes, the DEI group should should begin the efforts there. Um, and what I tell everybody when when you see a DEI group and no accessibility, how can you be diverse and inclusive if you're excluding people with disabilities? So let's turn to the pandemic, this thing that has changed everybody's lives in, in so many ways. And I'm, I'm sure that in your, your business and in your planning for, for GAD, there's 
a lot of ways that being in the, in the, the pandemic has affected you, the work that you do. But I guess I wonder what you would have to say about the pandemic's relationship to accessibility. I know there are people out there who are better able to work at home who have disabilities. There are other people who might find it challenging if the tools they want to use are not as accessible as, as they need. But just wherever you want to take it. But do you have any thoughts about the pandemic and accessibility? Absolutely. It's it's really been a mixed bag. There's my friend uh, Richard Ray. He oh, used to work at the LA City, and I think now he's at the uh, the FCC uh, as an advisor. And he really did a lot of work for helping people understand that folks that are deaf need to have some kind of ASL as well as closed captions because there's closed captions. There are ASL users, and they're two different groups. And if you are not doing an ASL and closed captions, then when, when you're doing emergency services, then a lot of people are not going to know what to do. And you can't make an assumption that somebody is going to tell them. So when you've got a pandemic going on and everybody's lives depend on understanding what is going on and what to do and what the restrictions are, and you're not providing that answer to, to ASL or, or closed caption users, that's a huge problem and it's a huge problem for everybody. So I'd say that that is something that the pandemic helped people to understand. And you started to see ASL uh, coverage on government, uh, government emergency services. And more, more still needs to be done. Um, on the other hand, Zoom put a lot of effort into the accessibility. They have an accessibility team. They continue to improve their product and they have more improvements on the way. And everybody that switched to Zoom all of a sudden became potentially more accessible. You still need to turn on closed captions, for example, but at least enabled you to be more accessible. Um, where, where this has had the biggest impact in general in terms of the pandemic is schooling because the schools have often put in a ton of work to make their courses accessible, to make getting in and out of buildings accessible. Like it, it's, it's, it's run the gamut and their entire infrastructure disappeared overnight when everybody's at home. And that again has been a mixed bag depending on the disability. So any of them that could have switched to Zoom, they might've had a, seen a, a big improvement and that proved that you can serve people with disabilities through Zoom, at least if you're if you're doing a remote uh, class. Uh, that said, there's a lot of people that really need attention in person, and there it suffered a lot. So that's what I've seen, but I'm sure I'm missing a lot because it's changed people's lives completely. And there's there's lots of people in lots of different types of cases. So there's. We could probably speak about it for two hours and, and still not come sure. And I, this this might or might not be related, but I'm just wondering if if you think there's any technological or societal development, anything that's going on now that has accessibility implications that people may not have thought of yet, or that you think people should be keeping their their eyes out for in terms of making sure that as we move forward, we keep the accessibility that we have and enhance it as well. Absolutely. You've got wearables are going to change the world, uh, wearables and healthcare. There's a massive shift that's happening. And then you have uh, AR and VR, so augmented reality, virtual reality. Uh, the, the devices are getting more popular, getting more interesting. There's still a ways to go, 
but all of the and haptics, all of those technologies are going to combine to change our daily lives. And every technology that's come around until VR, or let's just call it mixed reality. So let's call the entire thing I just described under mixed reality. Every technology before mixed reality, accessibility was an afterthought and had to be added in after the fact. And what a lot of people are working on in the accessibility space is to make sure that mixed reality, at least they're thinking about it in advance, hopefully paying attention to it. And what I try to tell people that are working in, in this space is that when you're trying to recreate reality and you have to recreate the physics and understand the differences of the human body, the closer that you get to the human being, the better the experience is. And it is a technological advantage to make sure that you make your products accessible because the edge cases, if you get those right, then you're going to get the other cases right for the average user, right? And there isn't really an average user, but getting the edge cases right will make it work for the rest of the users. And so the leaders in VR are going to pay attention to accessibility in advance. It's one of those technologies that's a little bit weird in that in that you get a huge, huge advantage. I, th I think accessibility helps all digital products, don't get me wrong, but in this particular space, you're going to be light years ahead if you pay attention to accessibility in advance. Do you have a pretty high level of confidence that that is happening, that people that are leaders in VR or that will be leaders in, in mixed reality, I should say, are, are actually focusing on accessibility the way you'd like to see them do? Yes, I, I actually am pretty confident about it. Uh, there's an organization called XR Access. Uh, Larry Goldberg is one of the people behind the scenes working on that, and he, he's really a visionary. Um, but everybody in the accessibility space is pretty aware of XR Access, I'd say. And all of the companies that, that are in it in a big way, they're, they're involved in XR Access. So I, I believe this is going to be the first one where uh, it is going to be paid attention to in advance. Very cool. So we have another GAD coming up in 2022. Uh, what do you what do you hope or expect for for the for the next version? What do you? I assume you're surprised each year when you see new things. You talked about all the events that you didn't even know were happening before they happened. But but what should we look forward to? Oh gosh, I, it's always a big surprise. But I would say that we've launched the GAD Foundation uh, for the 10th anniversary. So this entire time, it has just been a grassroots event. So now for the first time, there is uh, a nonprofit attached to it. So we're actually not, we're, we're trying to not make our events be at the same time as GAD because there's only so many hours in a day and so much madness you can handle. But it, it'll be interesting to see what it's going to be like having a foundation attached to it. And hopefully we'll get some good fundraising uh, out, of, uh, out of having the foundation known and around by the time GAD comes around, which will enable us to provide more services and, and take it uh, another step further. So the, the foundation will be funding GAD activities, or do you have other ideas for what you might like to fund? We definitely have other ideas. We are planning to do a GAD exchange so that the idea there is to introduce people with disabilities to folks that are doing digital products. Uh, we're going to have a Gaddies, so it's going to be some kind of fun award uh, event nice. for people who are doing good work for, for accessibility. But, but really, the mission is going to be to change the culture of software development. Uh, 
So I don't know if you're, how technical your audience is, um, but folks in the software development world have changed to the point that they use something called the agile methodology. And yeah. this is, this is really taken off. And I, I'm just trying to copy what the agile methodology has done because they've changed the culture of software development. Well, let's add, let's add in accessibility and do the exact same thing for accessibility. So it's really the mission of the GAD Foundation is to focus on the, uh, the culture of software development. Uh, and I'll add to one more thing that we're doing is the GAD Pledge, which is where we take open source software projects and have them take a pledge to make accessibility a core value of their project. And where that matters is that uh, it's used by millions downstream, all of these open source projects. And so the very first company to take the pledge was Facebook, and they have an open source project called React Native, which allows you to build software uh, basically one time for the web, for Android, for iOS, for different platforms. So a lot of people use that project and by making it more accessible, automatically there's a lot more accessibility downstream. Um, and then Ember.js just took it at the last GAD, took the GAD pledge. So this, this is something I think is going to help a lot. Very cool. Sounds like a lot of stuff to look forward to. I plan to dress up for the Gaddies one of these years and hopefully you'll be able to do it in person. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be great. Well, Joe Devon, thanks so much for your time. Joe Devon is the founder, co-founder of GAD and also the co-founder of Diamond, an agency in L.A. doing uh, accessibility work. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Shelley. Likewise. I'll be back in less than two weeks with another episode of Parallel. I'll be covering Apple's September 14th, hey, that's today, event uh, where we expect uh, new hardware and all sorts of good things that we don't know about as I record this the weekend before September 14th. In any case, uh, I'll have a couple of great panelists and we'll talk about the Apple event as it happened. Uh, you can follow this show over on Twitter at Parallel Pods. You can also follow me personally at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Your guest suggestions and show feedback always most welcome. You can go to relay.fm slash parallel to subscribe to the show and also to find links to everything we talked about and, and I don't say this enough, a transcript of each and every episode. They are rough transcripts, but I am happy and proud to say that transcripts are part of what we do here at Parallel. See you in a little while. Bye for now.